1: Hello, everyone,
2: and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with David Head about his book, A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy, and the Fate of the American Revolution. David, welcome back to New Books Network.
0: Well,
1: thanks for having me back. It's it's a real pleasure.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: So I teach history at um, the University of Central Florida in Orlando, And for people who don't know, um, UCF is a very large school, over 68,000 students now. Um, So my classes are usually very large. I grew up in uh, Western New York in the Buffalo area, where I did my uh, undergraduate at uh, Niagara University and my PhD at uh, the University of Buffalo. And I've lived um, down here in the South for, I think, nine years now, going on a decade. I like the uh, the the winter conditions here in Florida much better than anything <laughs> north. It is um, so strange to see some of the the weather reports or the news and like, oh yeah, I guess it still does snow in some places. <laughs> that is not my reality anymore, even not even anything close. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so I, I make everybody uh, everybody jealous who's up in the the Northeast or the Midwest.
2: So you you can accept hurricane season as the trade off then.
1: Well, yeah, so the thing about the hurricane season, whatever one, you know that is coming, unlike uh, a snowstorm that comes up overnight, and then people feel sorry for you nationally. Like, oh, it's a, it's a big tragedy. How are those people coping? Nobody feels sorry for you when it's just, you know, nine degrees and three inches of snow. It's like, what do you expect for living in western New York?
2: <laughs> so what was it that led you to write a book about the Newburgh Conspiracy?
1: So I started thinking about the Newburgh Conspiracy when I was actually listening uh, to an audio book about uh, the Whiskey Rebellion. That's in the the 1790s, the rebellion of farmers in uh, western Pennsylvania against uh, some taxes that have been levied on them in the new nation. And in this book, there is a background section about the Newburgh Conspiracy as an example of how uh, powerful figures – in the uh, new nation, like uh, the, the superintendent of finance, Robert Morris, and then Alexander Hamilton, who was at that time in the 1780s, a uh, delegate to Congress from New York, had conspired to try and use the army to frighten Congress and the states into increasing the power of the central government through the power to tax. Now, I had heard kind of kind of generally about the Newburgh conspiracy. I remember in grad school, um, I was TAing for a professor who told the story of Washington uh, giving a speech and crying uh, – I'm sorry, making the officers cry when he took off his took out his glasses and put them on and said he had grown gray and blind in their service. And I remember uh, I was TAing a class, and one of the students said uh, about the Newburgh conspiracy, oh, yeah, that, that was when Washington uh, was a real drama queen. So really that's all kind of – I kind of knew about it. And then I listened to this book and thought, you know, that's – if that's true, that that's a big deal, and that's something that the people should know about more broadly. And maybe there's a book in here. Um, I looked at the scholarship and found there really weren't many books on the Newburgh Conspiracy. Uh, really, the existing scholarship was a series of articles from the early 1970s in the William and Mary Quarterly. And you know that was wow, it's almost 50 years ago. Uh, so I thought, you know, this is a topic that could be revisited. And given how much of the founders' papers are now easily accessible in published editions or online from the the founders uh, the founders.gov site is really just incredible. So I thought this was a project that that I could do. Um, it's different from my earlier work, which was in nineteenth-century maritime history, but that was part of the appeal: was that I would get to dive into a new topic, uh, learn more about the American Revolution and you know it was really to me the question was was this really a conspiracy what what happened and trying to solve that mystery was what appealed to me
2: you have this uh, episode in American history, which is a very dramatic one, and is you know in itself of great interest. But what you do in your book, which I think you know really adds to its value, is you show how it sheds light into this you know the, this last phase of the uh, American Revolution, this uh, early stage of a country coming together, beginning to sort out what it means to be a nation, and you get into just all the difficult uh, mechanics of running a nation and and, and the the limitations that the newly established structures faced in terms of dealing with even the most basic of problems.
1: Yes, that's right. So it's so Crisis of Peace is about the Newburgh conspiracy, but it's really really time to tell the story of the last two years of the American Revolution, from fall of 1781 through uh, fall of 1783. And that, those larger stories, the finances, the politics, uh, how the army fits into this, the a little bit of the diplomacy, although that's mostly kind of in the background. Really, tell that story of the last two years via the Newburgh conspiracy is kind of a, the, the the main event, but really kind of expanding things out. And it's just it's just a weird period uh, where there's the the fighting. Looking back, we know the fighting was over uh, in, in large part. There are no more major campaigns after the uh, the British defeat at Yorktown. But people at the time don't know that, and they fully expect to keep fighting. Uh, There's not peace either. I mean, we know that peace is on the way, and people at the time suspect that peace might be on the way. It's being negotiated in France, but they don't really know when peace will arrive. So the kind of two years in limbo, what was it like to live in that period? And I find that a lot of sort of questions that have been suppressed by the urgency of fighting the war, things like, how did the states re- relate to each other, really? I mean, we one nation or alliance of 13 independent independent nations uh, that are s- together for some things, but separate for others. A lot of that has been – it's possible to suppress that during the war, but that emerges as the urgency of fighting decreases. So we're looking at a lot of those questions as well, just kind of what was it like for the nation – to really kind of getting the start during the the war, before the war's over, before peace has arrived, kind of a period of uncertainty, and that's uh, that's with really sort of the broader the broader picture of the book.
2: I was wondering if you could take us to uh, start us off by taking us to that last phase of the war, because you opened the book with Cornwallis surrendering at Yorktown. Again, as you point out, it's the you know the point at which we sort of recognize the American Revolution. Uh, the 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 warfare uh, the, generally coming to an end. What was the uh, condition of the nation at that point? And more specifically, what was the status of the Continental Army in the war effort?
1: So the Continental Army, uh, following the the victory at Yorktown, most of it um, moves up to the Hudson Valley. Um, and Washington has its headquarters in Newburgh, New York, uh, most of the army is encamped at a, a cantonment uh, near New Windsor, New York, which is you know a mile away and then uh, West Point, where the military academy is today, is in the same the same general vicinity so most of the army is there there also is though um, a force that 's in South Carolina under the command of Nathaniel Green and then there are other forces kind of scattered around. The British still occupy. The the major ports, uh, they occupy New York, for example. They occupy uh, Charleston, uh, Savannah too, I believe, um, although some of these are abandoned um, during the story that I'm telling. Uh, some of the forts out west. New York is really the most important one, and the British hang on to New York City until the end of the war. The nation as a whole, um, well, it's really hard to, to generalize the nation as a whole because most of the action is in the states. That's the loyalty that people still have. That's the political entity they care most about. The Continental Congress is the body that represents the nation as a whole, or it has delegates from the different states. But it really doesn't have much power. Uh, Congress, interestingly, they they pass resolutions. They don't pass laws. They make recommendations to the states. But the states are the ones who have to enact things. Uh, The finances – both the states and the Continental Congress are in really dire shape. Uh, just the cost of the war just exploded beyond anyone's prediction of what it would cost. Uh, and the states sh- shoulder part of that burden directly. The Continental Congress uh, shoulders part of that burden with money that is taken is uh, sent from the states. There is tremendous inflation because Continental Congress just printed money to pay for things and still – It just stopped doing that because it wasn't worth ruining the good paper. Um, (laughs) You know, it's just, yeah, it's blank paper. What are you ruining it with money for? It's that worthless. Um, Loans from France, loans from uh, individuals in the United States. So just owe a lot of money to a lot of different people. And there's really no clear path to getting out of that that situation. All of that financial situation is very uh, precarious because the states have such a loose connection to each other, so there's a fear that any really anything that could separate the states probably will and now that the again the urgency of winning the war is not there, things could go in any number of different directions and and most of them are not good
2: as you mentioned, the urgency of winning the war is gone, but at the same time, the war is still very much there, so as you explained the the united the the uh, the confederation government has to keep the army in being. Uh, encamped in anticipation of possibly having to resume the war at some point, that that certainly that we know of that the war is at an end is, isn't felt there. So you're describing in in, in your book the the army itself, in particular the officer corps. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about this officer corps because they really are so central to the story of the Newburgh Conspiracy.
1: Yeah, so the officer corps that that's the you know the, the book is really. Uh, the bulk of it is about George Washington's relationship with his officers and the officers' relationship with Congress as kind of stand—Congress is the stand-in for the civilians. Um, yeah, the officers, they're, they're interesting. they um, They are very upset about not being paid during the war, and they're also probably even more upset about they were promised pensions earlier in the war. There had been a wave of resignations. Uh, then they were given uh, offered pensions. And then after Benedict Arnold uh, changed sides, the Congress voted even more generous pensions to the officers to kind of stem any tide towards uh, following Arnold's example. Well, all of that was earlier in the war when you know the promise was made for after. It looks like the officers are not going to be paid their pensions, so that's one thing they're very upset about. Now, to understand the officers, it's important to see how they see themselves. The officers see themselves as gentlemen. And being a gentleman in the 18th century, it was – it's really hard to describe what exactly made a man a gentleman. There's no like firm guidelines or anything. Uh, there, there are you – know, people don't have titles of nobility in the United States. We don't have – we didn't ever have that, that layer of aristocracy. So it's a bit more amorphous. Um, money helps, but money's not the only thing. There are wealthy merchants who um are not considered gentlemen because they trade actively and they work with their hands and that's just you know that's the gentleman doesn't do that. Uh a big part of being a gentleman is that you act like one. You have the right manners and the right education. Uh but also you wear the right clothes and you travel in the right kind of coach with the right number of horses and you give the right kind of parties and serve the right kind of meals. And your wife has the right kind of dresses and all that kind of thing. So there's a, a big need for money amongst the officers, any gentleman, uh, even if they're not supposed to be really concerned with money for its own sake. Probably the officers that I find the most interesting are the younger ones. Uh, some of these young guys, you know, they they signed up at like 18, 19 years old, and they served the whole time, you know, eight years. So really, they've become men in the army. Um Many of these guys, younger guys, they were not from gentlemanly families previously. They might have been a farmer's son or a, a merchant's son. You know, they just—they don't have the status. They became officers in order to gain gentleman status. Um, and what they're afraid of is that if they don't have the money to keep up appearances, then they're going to go home, and people are going to say, "Oh, aren't you, aren't you, uh, John Smith's son, the the blacksmith?" Um, you're not a gentleman, are you? And you know the officers say, "Well, no. I, I was a I was a major in the army. Of course, I'm a general." And the the people in Hope home say, "No, no, no. Look at your 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 rags that you're wearing. You can't be a gentleman. You have to go back to your your lowly status. You don't get to move up in society." Um, so those are the officers I really find most interesting. The ones who have kind of an anxiety about. How is the war going to end, and what's going to happen to us afterwards? So that's a little snapshot of the officer as a as a group.
2: It, I was thinking as I was reading that about how you know where they were getting this from, and, and they, obviously the model for them would be the uh, British aristocracy in the 18th century, which is the one they would have had the most direct contact with in terms of British officers who had served there or government officials. And it's, it was fascinating to read about how you know the, that's the concept that they're basically trying to import in there. But as you're explaining. You know, initially when they uh, are, are soliciting officers for the Continental Army at the early stage of the war, there simply aren't enough, you know, natural gentlemen in colonial society or post-colonial society to fill that role. And that's what opens up this opportunity for advancement. But as you, as you just pointed out, it's, it's, it's one that's contingent upon having the resources to maintain it, to, to, to display that status
1: yeah that's exactly right there there aren't enough gentlemen to go around for all the officer positions that they need and that that's exactly the model that Washington wanted it was the British model of men of gentleman status to kind of uh overawe the uh the common soldiers into keeping discipline but there just weren't enough real gentlemen so they had to uh they had to import or open the uh open the gates to some uh some socially ambitious types and uh yeah, they, they're in real danger of losing their status if they can't uh, can't keep up appearances after the war.
2: And as you point out, Congress has made an awful lot of promises to them, and a lot of them were very easy to make because it was their standard, you know, provide us service now and we'll pay you at some point in the indefinite future. It's especially easy to promise to make, as you point out, because, you know, early on, there's no guarantee they're going to win the war. But now that they have, those promises are starting to come due, and yet, You've already alluded to the the financial status of, of the nation. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate in a bit more detail as to why the Continental Congress was really worried about having to meet these obligations and and satisfy all these promises that they've made.
1: Well, the biggest reason is that the Continental Congress doesn't really have any of its own resources to spend. I mean, they they, they printed their own money, but that, you know, that quickly got out of hand, Um they really rely on the states, and the states are supposed to uh, send a certain amount of tax money uh, every year to the Continental Congress. Uh, the way it works is Congress makes a budget. They divvy it up amongst the states. You know, Not not 13 equal, uh, but depending on population, there's a complicated formula for how they do this. And this, the states are supposed to uh, send a certain amount of money to the Continental Congress to pay its debts and retire the, the currency and all that kind of thing. The states don't do this reliably. Um, They have their own problems. The the states pay for a lot of the war effort themselves, too. And many of the states have cities or vast territories that have been conquered and occupied by the British. So, of course, for example, South Carolina can't send its full amount that it owes because the British occupies major port, Charleston. What are you going to do? So that's really the biggest source of the problems is that – uh, whenever well, one the, the the war is so expensive, but then Congress cannot figure out any way to get the resources to pay for their what they need, so they just you know kind of roll it into the future, make promises in the moment, and figure out payments some other time uh, that worked earlier during the war, but now that the war seems to be at least easing off a little bit it's time to make good on some of those promises and it looks like it looks like to many of the officers that the um, Congress is not going to be able to live up to what they promised.
2: So you describe how Congress is trying to deal with this in terms of this juggling act. And this is where the figure of Robert Morris becomes so important. I was wondering if you could perhaps tell us a little bit about him and how he tried to manage this uh, issue with the tools that he had and, and how that uh, – you know, and, and what that led him to conclude about what he really needed to, if he was going to successfully resolve these issues.
1: Yeah, so so Robert Morris is one of my favorite characters from from *A Crisis of Peace*. Uh, he was born in in Britain and he came to uh, the the American colonies as a teenager. Uh, he eventually uh, joins a um, into a successful merchant um, operation in Philadelphia and becomes uh, by the time of the Revolution one of the, the the richest men, most successful merchants, kind of worldwide network of trade. So he's he's, he's Is very well positioned um, in terms of international trade and financial matters. Uh, He had served in the Pennsylvania legislature and in the Continental Congress previously. And in 1781, he is named the superintendent of finance, a position that was newly created by Congress uh, for Morris to kind of put somebody in charge of the administration of all the financial matters. Morris has a, a program to help resolve resolve, uh, resolve the nation's financial problems, or at least not resolve them, address them, uh, he sees the principal difficulty as resuscitating the nation's credit, because if they don't have credit, then they can't borrow, and then they can't service their loans in the future or get more favorable terms, any of that kind of thing. Morris's uh, method of re- reviving the nation's credit is a little unusual, for us at least, is that he substitutes his own personal credit. So he buys things for the army on his own credit, um, you know, risking his own fortune on behalf of the nation. And he also uh, has plans for the creation of a uh, new bank, the Bank of North America. This is at a time when there, there was only one previous bank in, in the continent. So this will be the second. And the bank is a public-private partnership that exists to help loan money to the government. So it's really kind of Morris moving money from one account to the other uh, as he tries to kind of keep, keep all the finances going. Another critical part of Morris's vision, at least for securing the future, is that he needs some kind of tax revenue that will help go towards paying off the various debts that Congress has contracted. Uh, Morris is never under the illusion that he's going to pay back everything anytime soon, but at least make payments that will establish the nation's credit. The uh, the, uh, most likely source of new tax revenue was a uh, tax on imports called an impost. So there'll be a 5% tax on on all imports. And the idea was to have the revenue from that tax dedicated to Congress for the retirement of um, debts taken out to fight the war. Uh, The problem with that tax, however, is that under the Articles of Confederation, to have a national tax like that would require an amendment to the Articles of Confederation. And amendments to the Articles of Confederation required a unanimous approval of all 13 states. And, of course, that was very difficult to get. So Morris, I mean, is, is very energetic and creative, and he has the reputation that people will trust him financially, even when they don't trust the United States government. Uh, so that goes a long way towards propping up the nation's credit. Um, but solving those more intractable problems of where power lies in the nation, namely with the states, that's something that Morris is never really able to overcome.
2: That also gets to another aspect of your story, which I thought was fascinating, which was the the, the role that personalities play. You, you had these very – these, these key individuals in these, in, in these important posts who are really – it really is so much about what they're able to do individually. You're describing the shell game that Morris is playing by, uh, you know, depending upon uh, loans that are coming in from uh, um, uh, the U.S.'s uh, partners uh, and how he's, you know, shifting them around, using them to as collateral for other loans he's trying to raise. And it's just fascinating to see this effort to keep it juggling and how close he comes to really pulling it off. I mean, that as you described, that impost came, you know, very close to passage. It was just one state ultimately that that, that held out against it.
1: Yeah, so so uh, for for a while, Morris was very confident that they were going to get that revenue. Uh, it's Rhode Island that's the that's the holdout. As I always joke with my, my students, everyone hates Rhode Island in the 18th century <laughs> um, because they seem to be well, it's, it's, their, uh, it's their 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 dis- lineage from uh, from dissenters of the Puritans, and uh, they like to do things just to irritate everybody else. Um, yeah, it's Rhode, Rhode Island that votes no in uh, December – or November, December of 1782. And then right at the same time, Virginia acts bizarrely. Virginia had approved the impost, and then they take it back. They take it back in late 1782. Uh, they they refused their assent. Uh, and also um, uh, Georgia never, uh, never responded. Uh, interestingly, um, Georgia just isn't represented in the Continental Congress very often. Um, the fact that they're occupied, they're the smallest state by population, and they're the furthest state. There's just nobody from Georgia representing them. Um, so I guess there are three states that never approved one that was just missing an action, uh, one that approved and took it back, and Rhode Island that said no. Um, yes. So, yes, it, was, pretty, you know, it was, was fairly, it looked good. Like, you know, fall of 1782 was looking good, and then it just falls apart by the end of the year.
2: Now, are the officers in Newburgh uh, watching this, or are they totally detached from the political actions that are so central to whether or not they're going to get paid? So they're
1: they're following along. I mean, they certainly they follow the news in the newspapers. I mean, there's not a whole lot to do, uh, (laughs) you know, except police, you know, enlisted men, you know, twenty year olds, keep them away from the civilians and not chopping their fences down for firewood and all that kind of stuff that. The um, the list of men had a had a tendency to do, so they're certainly following along, and the officers at the same time are kind of formulating their own strategy to have their pensions pension secured. Um, a group of officers from Massachusetts really start organizing themselves in the summer of 1782. They receive Washington's permission to kind of meet together and organize themselves. And at first, they petition the state of Massachusetts to give to you know fund a pension for them. Uh, state of Massachusetts, they kind of table the motion. They don't come out and say no, but they say, "Well, we'll take it up in the new year." And of course, that you know doesn't really happen. Uh, so the officers were very much aware that they needed to be involved in the process in some way. Uh, once the negative comes from uh, Boston to the officers of the Massachusetts line. They then uh, bring in officers from the other states that are present in uh, the Hudson Valley region. Uh, And during the American Revolution, I should mention, uh, men served by state, so you served in a state line. So you served with other guys. If you're from Massachusetts, you served with other Massachusetts guys. Individual units were not mixed with men from different states, but typically— Within the the larger army in one place, you'd have four or five states at least. There are different lines there. So they're mixed in that sense. So representatives from Massachusetts joined with uh, representatives from New Hampshire, from New York, uh, from a couple other states who were present. And they formulated a memorial to Congress. Kind of all together, all of us officers who are encamped near Newburgh, New York, here is what we think. Here are our grievances. And here is what we want. And what they want mostly is funding for their pensions. That's the thing that they really focus in on.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's Shopify.com slash system.
2: So they put together this memorial and they send it to Congress. How do they just uh, transmit it to Congress? And what is the reception uh, when Congress receives it?
1: So the officers select uh, three representatives to, to send the message uh, personally and also to kind of be on the scene to answer questions, to negotiate, to twist arms if they have to. Uh, that delegation is led by uh, General Alexander McDougall, who was um, – he was from the British Isles, um, but he had been, lived in New York for a long time. And he, uh, he leads the way. So they, they traveled there in late, um, late December 1782. They got caught in a snowstorm because they're not traveling through Florida like I would. Uh, so, they, so they get stuck in the snow. Um, yeah. Um, and then the memorial is presented to Congress in early January 1783. The reaction from the delegates uh, to Congress is generally positive. The problem is that it's just the money. I mean they, they don't have a source of revenue to fund these these things. And where to obtain the source of revenue – that's the, a new tax, like the impost, but that's just been rejected. So Congress is kind of stuck. They can't act without the states, and many of the states are disinclined to enact new taxes, and they really don't want to enact new taxes if it means giving pensions to officers because there's a deep suspicion of officers and a deep suspicion of pensions. There's a feeling that pensions are a way the government controls people, and that's the tyrant's way of you know buying influence over people, and that's not what America should be. So there's a lot of opposition at the state level, and then Congress can't really do much if the states are opposed.
2: Now, in the middle of this uh, consideration, news comes from England, and how does this – what is this news, and how does it dramatically uh, shape the situation?
1: So there's news – news arrives of the peace process in kind of stages. you know, first arises rumors, and then it's some more official, and then you have to kind of wait for the official letters from the peace commissioners. Okay, so all that takes time. In mid-February, there are reports that are reaching Philadelphia that the uh, king has kind of that the king has indicated that a peace treaty is in the works. So, in late November, early December, every year, the king gives a speech to open Parliament. And in that speech, so this would be late 1782, uh, the king had referred to the United States as independent, and had indicated his his willingness to negotiate peace. Okay, so that's a major that's a major step. And then there's a lot starts to be a lot of speculation. Okay, what's the next step? Has there been a ceasefire declared? Is there really a treaty draft that is has been approved? Okay. Now, as far as anybody knows, in February, that's already happened. Um, they just don't know. So they're living kind of in the dark for a little while. Uh, that news of a ceasefire then arrives in late March of uh, 1783. So there's, there's never like one announcement the war is over. They're just little pieces of information that filter through different stages. And there's sort of deep anxiety of, well, when is the real news coming? When is it going to be official? Because it could be. You know, it could be the next ship that arrives two days later, or it could be three months later. No one knows.
2: But each little nugget of information is gradually decreasing the importance of the uh, of the Continental Army, the the need to keep it in being. So, how are, are the officers uh, aware of, of of the threat that this potentially poses, or are they just enthusiastic about the fact that the war is about to come to an end and they could all go home?
1: Yeah, it's. It's kind of the opposite. I mean, it's of course nobody wants to stay in the army and, and necessarily and you know be shot at and you know subjected to all those privations. But there is a sense I get that some of the officers at least think the war is ending too too quickly. Because um, like like you said, they they know or at least they fear that once the war's over and they're not needed anymore, then you know if, if the people won't pay up now when they need the army they're never going to pay up when the, uh, the army's not needed and everybody's gone home. At least that's the fear that they have. So there is an anxiety that maybe the war is ending too quickly, or at least peace is going to come and a lot of questions will not be resolved. Um, that, that That's what led me, that feeling is what led me to call the book A Crisis of Peace, because from the officer's perspective, peace is a crisis. Um, of, of course, they want the war won and over, but it also could mean that they're going to be forgotten and their sacrifices are just going to be left just unfulfilled up in the air with no resolution. So, yeah, the officers are aware of this and they are they're, – they're worried about what peace will really bring.
2: Now it's at this point that you have this anonymous letter that is circulating among the camps and I should say it's anonymous at the time you identify the author as John Armstrong. And I was wondering if you could perhaps explain a little bit about who Armstrong is and what is in this letter and how is how does it uh you know shape what's this 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 budding issue of 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 you know the debt and and the the pensions and, and the imminent end of the war.
1: So John Armstrong was a uh, major. He was the uh, aide to Horatio Gates. So Horatio Gates was uh, one of the leading generals in the war. He's the second highest ranking officer in the camp in the Hudson Valley there. Um, so so he is uh, the the aide de camp. And Armstrong. I mean, he's from a military family. His father had been a general. Uh, Armstrong Senior had fought with um, George Washington during the the French and Indian War. Uh, he is. Kind of notorious for having a, uh, how should we say it, a, a, a pungent personality. <laughs> uh, he's kind of difficult to get along with. Um, doesn't suffer fools easily and thinks pretty much everybody's a fool. Uh, later in life, he goes on to be a cabinet officer later on. Uh, so he's a, he, um, uh, a, a long uh, public life. Um, anyway, Armstrong, when he's, he's, he's in his early to mid-20s at this point in the 1780s. And uh, he meets with several other officers uh, in Gates's headquarters, at least the, the house that Gates has taken over uh, to be his headquarters. And these officers, maybe as many as a dozen, kind of get together. And I speculate, I make the argument that one of the officers, a man named Walter Stewart, he had recently, recently come from Philadelphia. And my argument is that uh, Stewart is starting to spread some you know very dark stories about the status of the officer's petition. Uh, that, you know, he's telling them, look, we're, we're going to be forgotten pieces here. Um, we better act now, do something now, or it's all over. They're just going to ignore us. I think that's what the discussion is at Gates's house, uh, that, that night amongst, uh, Armstrong, Stewart, and some others. I can't say whether Gates was part of those discussions, although, you know, I've been to the house. It's a historic site now. And you know, you you can't have a dozen young men um in your house and not know that something's going on. It's, it's small <laughs> enough. I mean, not <coughs> I mean, they weren't. You know, they were. They were. He must have known what's going on. At least something was up. Uh, even if he wasn't exactly in the room, he could he could uh, you know hear them through the floor or whatever. Um, okay, so so Gates must have been at least at uh, least tacitly aware of what was going on. The letter uh, calls on the officers to meet and to discuss a, a a response, some some second further measure to push Congress to get uh, the pensions and the the other payments that they that they wanted. Uh, the letter is a bit unbalanced, and they wrote it quickly, like in a couple hours, maybe just in, on that night, uh, and had it copied and ready to go out to the. Uh, the officers scattered around the Hudson Valley there for a while for um it, you know in the morning, so they he wrote this quickly, Armstrong did, and I assume he wrote this with the input of others. He didn't just you know do this all himself. they must have talked about it and discussed paragraphs and that kind of thing. Um, one part of the letter is very reasonable. It just asked the officers to draft a new petition using bolder language than before, but still respectful okay that's you know that's not the worst thing. Uh, later in the letter, though, he uh, Armstrong goes farther, and he says that the officers should remember they have what he calls alternatives, that they can, if peace arrives, they can refuse to disband. They can stay in the field and you know, force Congress to give them their money. Or if the war continues, Armstrong says, the army doesn't have to fight. They can just leave civilians to their own devices. Well, either of those, I mean, raising that as an option... As something to even think about, is really inflammatory. And that's what people seize on as being the goal of the letter. One of the things I contend in, in A Crisis of Peace is that, you know, it's, it's just hard to tell like what he really—I mean, it, he wrote both. You know, he wrote both sentiments. One was really inflammatory, and the other was, is fairly reasonable. They're both in the letter. Um, probably needed another draft to really figure out what he wanted to say. So, um, you know, both things are probably going through their minds, and it wasn't necessarily that the whole effort was about uh, sending a violent message, threatening Congress, although that was there. It's just kind of unfocused.
2: So, how is this letter received, both by the uh, the the commanders of the Continental Army and uh, you know the other major figures that are involved in this debate?
1: Yes. Yeah, so Washington uh, finds out about about the letter. Um, He receives a copy of it, and one of his aides uh, records that Washington was amazingly agitated, which is like a very – that's an understatement of what uh, Washington was probably doing. Washington had a terrible temper, um, and he would let his aides have it. He was very good at controlling it in public, but with his military family, yeah, the the walls were probably ringing with with, uh, George's uh, outrage. So Washington is furious but um, publicly he tries to stay calm. I mean, he presents this as not a really big deal. He postpones the officer's meeting. They wanted to meet the very next day. He tells them you can't meet the next day, but you can meet several days later. And he gives them the time and the place of their meeting and tells them that they are to, I believe that what he says is to maturely deliberate on what their response to Congress should be. Okay, so giving telling them, you know, to cool it off. Uh, the other officers are, are interesting. It's, there's no good account of you know what the reactions were and everything. There are a few indications of some officers close to Washington who were very upset about the letter. Um, some others indicated that the, uh, the letter had – the sentiments were, were widely approved um, or at least people, men were willing to entertain the contents of the letter. Although, again, we don't know whether people were enthusiastic about the alternatives part that threatened violence, or if they found the part about sending another letter, bolder but still respectful, if that's what they found appealing. We don't know. Um, Kind of reading it between the lines, um, I found that Armstrong, he wrote a second letter a couple days later in which he tries to kind of defend himself against some of the charges that have been made about him. I, I, these charges were not recorded. This must be in conversation. And he goes on a long defense about why he kept himself anonymous, for example. And reading that second letter, he sounds very defensive. So I can kind of only conclude that he must have been severely criticized for doing this, at least among some, in some uh, some corners. So I think it's fair to say that the reaction in Kemp was, was, you know, it, it's hard to know, but there were people who must have found it appealing, others who condemned it, some possibly in between, kind of willing to to hear what what Armstrong said, but I don't think the reaction was universal acclamation for our Ar- for uh, Armstrong's sentiments. It was one of those things that kind of it's it's hard to say, uh, and I think he was criticized outside of Congress. It's really in- or outside of the camp. It's really interesting because, um, like Washington writes immediately to. Uh, the Continental Congress to let them know what's going on. He, he writes to the um, president of the Continental Congress. But that letter doesn't arrive until probably till I think it's March 17th or March 18th, which is after the crisis has already been resolved. So that's an interesting part of the time lag between, um, between locations is that Philadelphia, they don't know what's going on. Until things have already been resolved, it it could have gone very badly, and they – people in Philadelphia wouldn't even – wouldn't have even known what had happened yet. So their reaction is, is of course, conditioned by the fact that there's a delay in in time from when they find out about it.
2: So you have – this basically being handled by Washington himself, and this is what gets us to this uh, famous episode uh, in, uh, in, in in you know in Washington's biography, where uh, you had the second meeting, and the officers are there, and Washington himself is present at this meeting. How does he address the men in, ter- in terms of dealing with this letter and and their concerns?
1: Yes. So Washington scheduled the meeting for March 15th, and that, of course, is a, you know, the Ides of March, a very significant date. Uh, As far as I can tell, and I thought a lot about this, I think it's just a coincidence that the meeting was on March 15th. That just happened to be the Saturday of that week. So, um, yeah, I would have liked to make a, a, you know, a bigger connection there, but I think it was just coincidence. So Washington shows up uh, to address the officers who've assembled and they don't expect him. He takes them by surprise, which I think is significant. Uh, earlier, he had indicated that they should send him a, a report of what they of what they talked about. And, of course, you don't ask for a report if you plan to be there. So he took them by surprise, and he gives them uh, – makes them a speech. And he condemns the anonymous letter. And, and in the book, I talk uh, – I go point by point about his rhetorical strategies and how he is positioning himself to be the officer's um, – their, their conduit to represent them to Congress. Uh, So I look at that in a lot of depth. The most famous incident in here, as I I think I alluded to it earlier, is that um, Washington ends his, ends his speech and he starts to read a letter from a congressman that uh, Washington wants to read this letter to demonstrate that that Congress is not, you know, opposed to the officer's pensions. They're just moving slowly. They're working on it. They take it seriously. That's the message washington wants to relay by reading this letter well apparently he starts reading the letter and he can't read the handwriting because it's small and it's it's unfamiliar to him it's not his handwriting uh so washington takes out his glasses from inside his coat now washington had just started wearing reading glasses a couple of weeks before uh, we, we we have the letter where he writes to the the instrument maker who constructed his glasses and ground the lenses and everything thanking him for his new pair of glasses that was just in February of 1783. So, most of these men have never seen Washington wear his glasses. And it seems that in putting on the glasses, Washington made a remark, some remark like, uh, I've not only grown gray, but also blind in the service of my country. Uh, there are some different versions of it, but I think that's kind of the core of it. Washington said these lines as a kind of fill, fill time as he was putting his glasses on. And seemingly that kind of broke the tension. There are reports that that men were weeping because of the gesture that Washington had made, kind of the vulnerability, the way he he drew attention to the sacrifices that he really made, that he had suffered the way that they had suffered. Um, So that kind of – that breaks the tension and really makes it impossible for anybody who wanted a strong statement or a statement threatening violence, certainly, to Congress. That was not going to work. And the officers they draw up some resolutions, and they unanimously uh, they label the the um, the anonymous letter they they label it infamous, uh, unanimously. So they've all turned away from any temptation they might have had to uh, to push against Congress.
2: It's fascinating to think of just how pivotal he is uh at this uh moment in all these events because it i it, it's impossible to think of anybody else who would have had that degree of 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 esteem certainly nobody from philadelphia who, i mean the idea of somebody writing up there and you know making a similar reassurance it probably would not have had anywhere near that degree of credibility
1: yeah no this, this is an instance where you know I, uh, where washington is indispensable um you know, as an academic person are kind of cynical about you know right, our kind of mythological founding fathers and but I mean Washington it is just he's just indispensable in that moment. He's the one figure who the officers trust, and he's also the one figure who the con the congressman trust. And there's that that Venn diagram of you know, trusted figures, uh it only overlaps at Washington at that one point. So yes, he he needs to be the one who talks down the officers, who tells them to trust me. I trust Congress, you can trust Congress. And then he also goes then and writes to Congress and says, look, we faced this great temptation, but you don't need to worry about the officers. In fact, this whole episode is just more proof of how virtuous they are because they can, you know, face come face to face with temptation and stare it down, and reject it and remain loyal. So, we're, we're we're even better for having this incident because it got to prove how much we love liberty and, and all that kind of thing. So yeah, so, so Washington's presence there, his performance was really important. Uh, I should mention, I, I don't think there was a coup on the table. That's one, that's one um, argument you sometimes hear about the Newberg conspiracy. I don't think that was going on. But the incident was still dangerous because if Washington wasn't there, then really anything could have happened. The officers could have issued a strong uh, and possibly not so respectful letter to Congress. And then, as you mentioned, there's no one from Philadelphia is going to be have the credibility to talk them down. So Washington, you know, really did need to perform in that moment to prevent something far worse from happening.
2: So what follows from the, uh, fr- from the, uh, you know, the handling of this incident? I mean, what what happens to the army after this and what happens to their concerns about the pensions? Were, were, uh, were they addressed or were their worst fears realized?
1: Uh, their worst fears, no, but, you know, plenty of other painful uh, things happened. So r- r- not long, like a week or so after this incident, in late March, uh, March 20-something, the uh, news of uh, the ceasefire arrives in North America. So you know that's the sign that there's going to be no further uh the cessation of hostilities is the term that's used so all right the actual fighting then is is over uh that arrives very quickly af- afterwards so then that becomes the most important question is okay, how do we get the army home and uh not have one last uh, confrontation and here you see how congress Congress just made things up as they went along um They had not really thought very long or hard about what demobilization would look like, what it meant to demobilize the army. Uh, One category of enlisted men had enlisted for the war. That's what it said, enlistment for the war. But what did that mean? Did that mean the official peace treaty? Did that mean cessation of hostilities? Uh, They hadn't really decided. So you had all these guys who wanted to go home, thought they should go home, but no one knew exactly – if this was the end of the war or if they had to stay in the service okay so Congress had to figure that out the officers um, continue to hold on but they really don't want to leave necessarily before a final settlement and you know just how fast the things start to move once the hostilities are are de- the cessation of hostilities is declared really goes against the officers because you know Congress doesn't want to pay for these guys you know, to subsist in the field any longer than they have to. It's really expensive. So they start to move the, the soldiers out of there as quickly as possible. Officers go with them. And um, pensions are approved. The funding is secured in late March. The money does not arrive to everybody. So what is approved is a lump sum conversion. So rather than being paid uh, their half half of their salary for seven years, or for life as they've been promised, they get a sum of money, commensurate with their service and their rank and all that kind of thing. Um, some of the officers are in camp to receive it. Others have already gone home. And even among those, uh, so the guys who went home, they would eventually receive it. It's just they don't have it in hand when they start to travel. Um, you And know, you can imagine what it's like to try and track down payment if you're in South Carolina or something and you gotta go to Philadelphia to get it. It's a big pain. Um, but even amongst the officers who were in the army long enough for the actual payment to start arriving, uh, many of them just sold off their notes to speculators because they needed something, some immediate cash to come home in. The, the, the payments that the men received, it was not – it was um, – the payments were actually from Robert Morris, so Robert Morris's private notes. Okay, so it was not money from the government. It was Robert Morris's money. You might be been wondering, well, I thought the country was broke. Where they come up with the money? Robert Morris came up with the money, and he signed, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars worth of notes, and some of it arrived before the others did. So they just had these Morris notes, and some of the men they wanted, you know, like actual things that they could travel with, like new clothes, or they wanted a bottle of whiskey or a or whatever. Um, they wanted passage, that kind of transportation. So some of the men they they just traded um, their Robert Morris notes to suppliers to get something of value so that they could go home. Um, you know, So they received the money from their pensions, but uh, a good chunk of them never enjoyed the full value of what they were promised.
2: What would you say is the legacy of the Newberg conspiracy or the Newberg episodes, perhaps it might be better called?
1: Yes, I struggled for a long time to think of a title that didn't have Newberg conspiracy because that's one <laughs> of the things I was I – was, uh, Kind of questioning, but then I realized, well, that's what everybody knows it as, so you got to call it that. Uh, so, so that's no problem. Um, you know, this is one of the events that pushes the country towards the Constitution. Eventually, it's for men who served in the Continental Army. Um, this is, you know, evidence that the Articles of Confederation, their kind of loose power structure, strong states, weak central government, that all that really does is lead to some groups of people. Right, being cheated um, namely the officers they' never the are never been treated well during the war and they just saw they they saw this as just another example of how strong states would not necessarily keep the country together in the future and it's probably only a matter of time be- before something fell apart uh the officers supposedly one of their favorite um, toasts was supposedly when they were drinking they would, they would toast to the to each other to be a hoop to the barrel those are saying right that the barrel is the individual slats or the individual states and the officers are like the the hoop that keeps them all together so this is an incident towards more of a nationalist perspective that you'll then eventually see in the federalist movement um during the um uh, the ratification of the constitution that movement for a stronger central government you know they can point to things like the Newburgh the newberg uh, incident as another example of how if you let the states run things some, some soldiers, some officers will do okay. Other officers will, will be ignored. So another piece of evidence that a stronger central government was, was necessary from the officer's perspective.
2: We've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: I am um, not working on anything in particular uh, that I don't really have anything uh, necessarily underway. I, I have three small children. And we have one. Our um, my son is now six months old, and I'm finding out that while I could, you know, write books and do research with two kids, I think that might be the limit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at least, uh, at least, at least for a little while. So uh, I have a few shorter things in mind on the American Revolution, uh, and then focus on my teaching and my family, and you know, sort of slowly th- think of some ideas for the future.
2: Well, I hope something comes up soon because with this book, I look forward to seeing what you come up with next.
1: Okay. Thank you very much.
2: Uh, David Head, thank you for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Okay. You too.